Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Katie Hannigan taught preschoolers and performed as a mime before ever embarking on a full-time career as a stand-up comedian. So far, so good. Hannigan was a new face at Just for Laughs Montreal, made her late-night TV debut on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert soon after. Hannigan has appeared on Comedy Central, MTV, and The Travel Channel, developed a game show for The History Channel, and wrote a horror comedy series for Snapchat. She currently co-hosts a podcast with comedian Sarah Tolomash. Lady Journey. And in March 2022, she released her debut comedy album, Feeling of Emptiness. Hannigan spoke with me about those past experiences, as well as studying in Russia, pretending she's a garden statue, and how she's the captain of her own ship steering her comedy career. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! Yes, did you, are, what, are you, what are you thinking of the Oscars last night of the slap? Well, the last slap things heard for, round the world. Last things first, Katie Hannigan. Who's a more dangerous audience? Preschool kids or, uh, <laughs> or a comedy audience? I, I think comedy audience 100% because preschoolers are very, they're like very understanding. They're very giving. And like preschoolers have, you wouldn't, you would be surprised by this, but preschoolers have way better manners than the average comedy audience member. So a preschooler wouldn't slap you in the face. They would know hands to yourself. <laughs> I, I used to say that I used to say that to people all the time at, you know, like people, everyone always wants to like have a hug. You're like, no, please leave me alone. <laughs> hands to yourself for God's sakes. What what is it about ha- like do do preschool kids do they make like a a perfect audience for someone who's thinking about becoming a stand up comedian because I know I know you uh, many comedians your your current boyfriend among them or have all had teaching backgrounds before pursuing stand up yeah you know what it is actually a great lesson it's a great lesson in playfulness and it's a great lesson in understanding different types of humor i think um because like i remember when i was teaching i would basically do stand up and i i I was doing it for kids so it was so funny because i realized like things that we think are different you know like something that's funny is like an anomaly, right? You expect something and then it, you know, it's a misdirection and, and it's kind of the same way for kids, but like, I would do these bits. I would call them. They were like, you know, my students were like three and I'd be like, Oh, you know, I have something like some, some example, like a pin, like it's my toothbrush, uh," you know, and that to them is hilarious. And it's kind of the same principle that we have in our mind where it's like, but it's actually not a toothbrush, you know? So the comedy comes from the, um, I think the, the dissonance of realities. 
Was there any overlap between your two careers where you were doing stand-up and teaching? Oh, yeah, there was a lot of overlap. The reason I taught for so long was because it was kind of a good fit for, you know, doing my my open mic lifestyle where I was like running around, you know, doing open mics every night, doing my shows. And then I would go home, I'd sleep for like a few hours and then I would get up, I would work for four hours and then come home, take a nap, do writing. And then that was my that was my life for years and years. So it was actually great. And then when I I could, I started doing more road stuff around 2016. So that's when I transitioned away from it because it was tough to be able to take off like the Thursday, Friday. True. When did the mining you, you joke on in on stage and in your new album feeling of emptiness about a period where you performed as a mime. When, when was that period of your life? I was very deeply involved in miming when I was in college. So my friend and I would do street performing together and we actually would get harassed. So that is a joke that's based totally in reality. Um, We would perform in Indianapolis, um, different, different parts of Indianapolis. And I think the first time we did it, we got about $60 and we were like, Oh my God, I didn't realize that you could be rich from performing. (laughs) So we just, we just were kind of doing it for fun, but I was very interested in um, silent movies at the time. I really loved um, Charlie Chaplin. And then, uh, so I was just interested in any type of physical comedy. And uh, I was in, this was also in the early days of Facebook. So I was, I befriended some, you know, different mimes throughout the world on Facebook. And then when I moved to New York, You know, I just thought, like, how cool would it be to go into, like, a niche art form and really um, master it? You know, I think that was what appealed to me about miming is that it is such a niche that it's such, like, a skill-based art form. And so when I moved to New York City in 2008, I did have an audition with the American Mime Theater. And I was accepted. But I remember I went to one of their performances and it was just, like, It was so clearly just out of work actors, you know, people that were just kind of trying to do anything. And you also had to buy a suit. You had to buy a black suit that was like a hundred dollars. And at the time I just had no money. I just thought, Oh, I can't, I can't spend a hundred dollars on this cat suit that, you know, that's the required uniform. And so I just thought, nah, I'll pivot. Would, it, would, would a black suit be even more prohibitive than, say, the miming of the Blue Man group having to go fully blue? You know, I probably I would have gone blue. I don't I don't have the problem with um, I don't have a problem with the uh, extensive costuming. I just, mm-hmm. you know, it was out of my budget. OK, but I did do when I was in college and when I was doing my miming, I did like a few forays into living statue. And I was, I was doing a, I did like a, this little piece at the local garden show. Mm-hmm. It was like the local garden show in Indianapolis. And I played the, you know, it's like the woman in the garden. I forget what movie it's from, but it's a girl and she's holding, she's kind of like a bird bath. So I covered myself in gold body paint and people really thought I was a statue. I remember I heard somebody, they said, that statue's got a wig. <laughs> but I also had put like gold, I put gold spray in my hair and it was great. The statuesque Katie Hannigan, ladies and yes. gentlemen. Yes. Yeah. Is mining big in Russia? 
No, I, I, I don't think it's quite that big in Russia, but I did go to Russia for acting. So I went to study at the Moscow Art Theater, Mahat, which is one of the most famous theaters in the world, really. So it was kind of really exciting for me to get to go. And, and we did do, I do remember doing a lot of dance, a lot of movements, a lot of acrobatic um, classes. I bet oh, you didn't man. think that would pay off dividends a decade or so <laughs> later. <laughs> like, right, right. <laughs> I know what it's like behind enemy lines. <laughs> yeah. Do you do you bring that up at all since uh, since war has become more of a global threat? You know that joke I wrote about studying abroad in Russia, particularly the later tag of it, is actually a newer joke, and I have found. Since the war is going on, it just doesn't really work because it just feels a little tone deaf to what's happening over there. You know, I don't think it's like it's not as fun to joke about Russian people hating American people when, you know, it's it's just now there's so much baggage involved with it. But when I was in Russia, this was in 2007, it was right around the time that Saddam Hussein was executed by the American government. And so I remember that joke kind of came out of. Some of the other Russian students, I remember they were telling us our families don't like American people. And, you know, we think like what you've done is wrong. And I'm like, well, I barely read the news because I'm 19. <laughs> so I'm not sure what's happening. But mm-hmm. but I think the first time I really remember knowing who you were as a comedian was, I guess you were still a full time teacher because I I saw and wrote about you in 2015 when you and Corinne Fisher did this show called The Comedian Project. Oh, yes. That was so nice that you did a little write-up on us. That was so sweet of you. Yes, my little write-ups. Refresh my memory, and for those of us us listening, what the, the object of The Comedian Project was. Well, the... The actual object was that we were trying to get some stage time for ourselves. So we decided what's <laughs> the something- true ulterior motive. Yes. Yes. That was the actual object. So we thought, okay, now we need a hook. And Corinne was so involved in her podcast, the guys we fucked podcast at the time. And I, so we thought maybe what if we kind of do this pivot where we, we turn it on its ear and we're doing a feminist piece, um, a feminist stand-up piece where we don't involve men in any way in our, um, in our stand-up. And then we mm-hmm. kind of did like, we kind of, um, we kind of bookended it with this fake comedy show. So the first act of the show was a fake comedy show where it was me actually telling some very men-centric jokes I had written as different characters. And Corinne hosted the show as a, as a guy who uh, made jokes about an, a, like a, a character of an ethnic background. So it was, um, it was kind of just poking fun at, you know, this stereotype of women who, which I, I don't know if it's, it is, it does exist in reality, but like these women who kind of are newer to comedy and they come on stage and they just talk about, you know, drinking cum or whatever you know Uh, as you do as you do as you do we we've all done it (laughs) and then you know we we also added like a little bit of a research element to it and we said you know 
what, what are people talking about? Like, do guys, is it just women talking about sex, you know, guys? Cause we actually found out that it's not really women that do it. It's just comics in general. that kind of lean on sex, dating relationship, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend jokes as a crutch. So then it evolved from the um, fringe festival. And then we did, uh, we did run the show for about, three years, I think, at the standing room in Queens. And so we would invite any of our friends to come, guys and girls. And it was just a just a goal of doing no jokes about sex, dating or relationships, just as kind of like a, you know, a fun exercise to break you out of what you're used to doing. Right. Did you feel coming up yourself as a stand-up that you had to go up against expectations or stereotypes of what it's what it's meant to be a young woman doing stand-up yeah well I think it's just because um you know you want to talk about stuff that's relatable to the audience and sex and dating and relationships is such a broadly relatable category you know and I would find myself almost like trying to go away from it and um, going towards a feminist angle where it was like, oh, men, you know, men, I, I'm a victim of the behavior of men. And, um, you know, I'm on the right side because men are keeping me down. And and I thought even that you're still kind of playing into maybe a, a, like a different expectation of of women, which is like either it was like the Madonna whore, the Madonna whore complex. It said like, so I kind of just wanted to get away from that and say like, well, can I just do observational humor? Can I just do observational humor? Like, like what Seinfeld is doing, you know, or can I just do something that's more um, grounded in like the mundane nature of reality? And I think you just have to be a more skillful comedian to make things like that relatable and funny. And because you were doing this with Corinne, I mean, at the time, Corinne and Christina, their their podcast, which you mentioned, blew up. Did mm-hmm. did that have an impact on you since you were still pretty new in stand up in terms of like how we, you thought the path to success might lead you? Well, I know, I mean, I have been doing stand-up about the same time as Corinne and Christina at that point. So I think Corinne and I have both been doing stand-up about, at that time, about five years. Mm -hmm. So I think their podcast was maybe already starting to do really well. And um, yeah, I was happy for them. And I, I definitely wanted to start a podcast. You know, I think there was, there's been a big shift in the past 10 years of going from like, doing straight stand-up and just focusing on that to like a myriad of other things. But um, I think for me, it didn't really occur to me as an option because I thought, oh, that's something they're doing. I'm kind of doing this other thing. Right. And you did still take kind of a, a traditional path because in 2018, that's when you, you got new faces at the Montreal Just for Last Festival. And that's when you got a uh, late show with Stephen Colbert like the very kind of traditional, oh, you go through the industry and then you get your your five minutes on, on network TV and then that's how you do it. So when you got new faces, that was also the year, wasn't it, that Amazon Prime Video was filming everything? Yes, yeah. So did, how, did, how did that color your expectations of how the industry might look at you? Well, I think I, I well, first of all, let me just say that I did go the traditional 
path of stand-up, but it was kind of by default. Like, I think, you know, I was trying to do like the Fringe Festival piece. I was trying to do packets. I was also trying to do late night writing. Uh, I did have a podcast in 2018, which kind of never really took off. And so I kind of ended up just going the traditional route of getting better and better at stand-up by default. I was also doing auditions at the time and, you know, trying to do like indie films. Um, You know, I have like a a big resume of like many indie films that I've done. So um, for me, I just ended up kind of doing, you know, the traditional stand-up path by nothing else hitting. But, but yeah, the Amazon Prime thing was actually pretty hilarious because I had gone to New Faces Unripped, which arguably is a much harder, (laughs) it's a much huger pool uh, of people that you're throwing yourself into and being chosen from than, you know, people that kind of, I think, have their hands stamped a little bit. So um, Amazon basically treated me like an extra. I had, I was um, forced to sign a paper in order to get my few pennies that they, that they gave mm. us for food and whatever. I was forced to sign a paper and then they would kind of position me like, so it was, you know, the stars, the stars in the front and I would just be in the back, like, you know, eating nuts, I guess. And, <laughs> And so it was, it was honestly a nightmare. And I, I've seen it. My parents watched it. I guess they sent me some screenshots. I'm just in the back. You know, the first day that we got there, it was pouring down rain and we were all like, just, we had got caught in a rainstorm, just frizzy, you know, in a bad poncho, you know, and the stars were in front and I was just in the back, like as though, um, as though I was a, a background actor, you know, meanwhile, I'm like, I, I feel like I deserve to be here more than anybody but I'm not getting, you know, I'm not getting $60,000. So I'm not, I'm not like of note. <laughs> did that surprise you or did you have no illusions at that point of, of what the, the default industry path was going to look like? I mean, what do you mean? The, did what surprise me? How, how your, how your own experience with, with Montreal and just for laps ended up playing out because, you know, I'm old enough to have remembered, you know, in the late nineties and the early two thousands comedians were getting new faces and then they were getting million dollar development deals. And then that all went away and then social media and, and this new frontier of streaming gave new opportunities to people. And I don't know by the time you got there, like what expectations there were, if any, Oh, sure. I mean, I didn't have an expectation of, you know, getting a TV deal or anything like that. I mean, I for me, I guess, and now that, you know, it's just another kind of like a brownie badge of, oh, you know, I always wanted to get that one. I Now I got that one. But people, I, I guess people do say that a lot of people say like, oh, JFL doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't do anything for you. But it did help me, um, you know, doing doing this huge showcase and introduction to the industry definitely helped me. Um, because people were there that saw me that did later hire me for, you know, maybe some smaller like freelance stuff or, um, uh, but yeah, it definitely didn't, it didn't do nothing. It didn't break me into like, oh, I've made it now, but I don't know if there is anything that can do that in this modern context where, you know, the landscape has just shifted so much more towards having your own following on social media and everything. Well, you you have done some work both online and with traditional TV in recent years, whether it was Snapchat or web series or working on developing stuff with History Channel. 
how much of that did you have to carve your own path as an unrepped person versus how much going through the gauntlet of JFL kind of helped, helped give you some momentum out of that? Yeah, well, get, getting representation did help. It did help, although I realized I would not, I didn't really need to go to JFL to do that. I could have, um, I could have, I guess, waited and gone the next year as a rep person. (laughs) I could have done that. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think it's just still, it is good to have representation. It's good. I'm grateful for like any work that they get me, but you know, it's like, I'm still kind of the captain of my own ship here. So um, I don't think that like, um, I'm in a position where it's like, I, I'm not at like a top, uh, agency or something where it's kind of like, oh, everything just like lines up neatly, but I don't know a lot of comedians that are, you know, I think like most of the people I know that I work with that are, um, you know, comics in New York are still doing their own stuff, booking their own stuff for the most part and getting help, you know, here and there. Um, even people that are really successful, I think they're kind of going, okay, what do I want to do next? And, you know, right. I mean, even with your, your album feeling of emptiness, you joked online about how you ended up having to self-produce it or you ended up choosing to self-produce it. How much of that is a, (laughs) is being the captain of your own ship versus, oh, I guess I have to be the captain of my own ship. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's just like, it's not, it's not a good trade off to outsource stuff to people that you know, aren't going to do as good of work as you, you know. So I think like, with the with the album or with, you know, um, for example, like if I wanted to self produce like another piece of work, like a short film or something, it's like, I know, or like my podcast, which we do all we do everything on on the podcast as well lady journey my podcast with sarah talamash i think it's just that um i have really high expectations i have high standards and i know and i have had experience where it's like okay well let me just let these other people handle it and it's like oh well of course they don't care as much because to them i'm just like another you know i'm, I'm like another person of hundreds of people that they're working with but for me it's like well this is everything so I think that's it's more of kind of like a perfectionism and also post-pandemic and and even pre-pandemic a little bit I'm just more drawn to the idea of operating comedy as like a small business and connecting with that thousand people you know you need to have like you know what I'm talking about where that article that the guy wrote where it's like you need to have a thousand true fans And I think I prefer, I would prefer to have that type of mentality of like running my own business, doing the kind of work that I want to do and engaging with people who are my fans on an intimate level than just kind of like, you know, doing something that's a little bit more commercial that in that case, nowadays, you don't really have that much stability. Right. (laughs) Speaking of, I mean, especially in the pandemic that, uproots everybody's sense of stability in every career. And of course, stand-up comedy is even more obvious because you're relying on a live audience. And then in 2020, that's all taken away. Now, yeah. I, I know just not only from seeing you uh, perform in Aruba, but also uh, I recently did an episode of the podcast with Ray Allen. You, yeah. you spend more time in Aruba than I, than I even knew. <laughs> yes well my boyfriend and I were down there for about three months last year 
So it was, it was really such a great experience for me. I, of course, I love Ray and he's a wonderful friend. And um, we just went down, we went down for about 10 days and I was just begging Mike. I'm like, why are we going back to New York? It's, you know, the winter, I hate it. We can actually perform here. So it was kind of one of those like magical pandemic happenstance stories where it's like, oh, and then I just spent three months in a foreign country. I just got to do that. So I, it's, it was also really good for my self-esteem because now, you know, whenever I'm like us, I just made $5 and, and I didn't like, you know, I, I made $5 and someone heckled me. I'm like, well, I did spend, I did spend a good portion of the pandemic on a tropical Island. So I'm, I feel, you know, I have to feel grateful for that. So it definitely had an impact on your uh, mental and emotional health what kind of an impact did it have on you professionally in terms of just like the, the bare bones of, of being a performer and, and keeping, keeping the professional momentum going through the pandemic? Well, you know, it's always good. It's always good to, you know, perform in different contexts and the context of Aruba, I would say is different than something that I would perform in during, you know, even during the pandemic in the city, I was doing those rooftop shows, the park shows and, during in the city in general, the crowds are like a little younger, hipper, um, more liberal, I would say. And so it's, it was good to perform for that crowd and just get comfortable performing to that crowd. Like uh, I will often do well in like casinos or like this past weekend, I was at a theater in a small town where it was like mostly older people. And I think that that can be kind of intimidating. I think, you know, baby boomers can be like a tricky audience to perform in front of because they demand a really good show. And, you know, it, they aren't necessarily the most supportive audiences, especially if somebody who looks like me, who doesn't look like a typical comedian to their perspective, you mm-hmm. know? So it was a really good, um, it was really good to perform for that type of crowd over and over again, because I realized that, you know, I have to set myself up for success by being playful. And, you know, it's more kind of like about the mindset that you get in before you go on stage than it is about the actual jokes you're telling. Now, you know, not long after I hit the record button, you wanted to to launch right into joking about, you know, the, the hot button topic of the moment as we talk here at the end of March 2022 which was the Academy Awards and and Chris Rock making jokes at the expense of Will and and Jada Pickett Smith and then Will Smith slapping Chris on live television Uh, as a comedian how, how do you react to all of that? Well, you know, I think my gut reaction is that I just find it really disturbing. I just, as a person, not even as a comedian, I just find it a really disturbing sign that our society is crumbling. You know, it's like, what is happening? What is happening? That was the trending hashtag. That's how I I feel about it. As a comedian, I think it's really like, it's just a shame that that kind of behavior has become normalized. You know, like I've definitely had, um, uncomfortable scenarios where people think that it's somehow okay to bully comedians. It's like, well, you know, it's Chris Rock, you know, that he's going to tell jokes. So, you know, I don't know what the, I I just don't understand the overreaction, but you know, at the same time, it's like, well, I can't let myself get too dramatic about it either. I can't, you know, so it's just like, it's just nonsense. 
So, I mean, you already had a feeling of emptiness before that, so. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can't spiral. I can't spiral. <laughs> Although, I have to say, like, I don't usually have, God willing, knock on wood, I don't usually have that part of a time with people overreacting to my personal jokes. But I, I definitely do am uh, living in fear that I will say something that will cause someone to attack me. So, you never know. <laughs> could be here. You know, it could happen at any time. So, Katie, what, you, what is what is not what is left for you? But <laughs> you know, you you put out the album. You've you know you've been on TV. What is the next goal for you? Well. I- I, I would love to, I would love to do a writing job. Um, I love writing and I think that that would be something, um, really great and challenging for me. I love writing jokes. I love late night TV. Um, so I would like to do something like that. Uh, or, um, I'm also, um, I have an acting background. I'm an actor as well. I just did a, a short film and uh, I would really like to um, book work again. So I'm, I am auditioning. I am, I, my schedule is clear. So if anyone wants to hire me, um, yeah. So those are kind of the things I'm focusing on now. I'm, I'm writing a, I'm writing a screenplay, you know, just kind of for fun. And I think like after a big accomplishment like this album, it's kind of like, well, the dust is still settling. So who knows? Well, Katie Hannigan, I'm sad you're no longer my neighbor here in Astoria. I know. But I'm but I'm grateful that you're willing to catch up with me. And congratulations once more on your new album. And I look forward to people hiring you for more things in the very near future. Yes, I'm available. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.